You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Welcome. Glad you guys are here this morning. For those of you online, thank you for joining us. I think um, just a couple words before we get to it. Preaching is always a heavy thing. Gathering as a church and to sit under God's word is always a heavy thing. And this morning it's heavy for additional reasons. And so we talked about a little bit this week, you know, how do we, how do we respond as a church to what's happening just up the road from us and how do we wade into this conversation that we've been planning to have about ethnic unity and racial reconciliation and kind of the point that we've just kept coming back to is where is our hope? It's the gospel. Where is our hope in this life and the next life? It's the gospel. Why do you even want to push through these hard conversations and hard times? It's for the glory of God, for the sake of the kingdom the advancement of Christ, that his name would be lifted up no matter what. And so I want to assure you, before we go any further, um, thank you for waiting in this morning. Thank you for being here, uh, part of this tough conversation, and for gathering on a morning where it is a little bit harder, I think. And so our resolution as a church is, as always, to keep the gospel the main thing. And you're going to hear more about that as we even get into this conversation this morning. So here's my story. I just gotten my driver's license, and um, I'm heading up to Akron, 16 years old. I-77 North, the Carroll Street exit. End of the off-ramp, there's a black man sitting on a crate holding a cardboard sign. And through absolutely no discernible choice in my head, I find that I am reaching over to press the lock on the driver's side door. And it's almost unconscious, it's almost a reflex, just. And I remember even in that moment, kind of catching myself, asking why, where did that come from? Where did I learn whatever that was? What hidden bias was buried somewhere in my subconscious that led to an unacknowledged belief that resulted in an unwilled behavior? I changed the radio to justify the movement. I casually look the other way, the light turns green, and I drive off. Whenever I get to where I'm going, I find that the door was still locked. So that's my story. I wanted to ask you, I wonder if you have a story. Preaching is always hard, especially with something like this, as we try and disentangle our personal experience from maybe our collective past and rise above the din of the news media and the collective cultural story. And we want to get to that spot where David says in Psalm 139, Lord, search me. If there's any way that's offensive in me, straighten it out, God. So welcome. This is week one of a five-week teaching series called Undivided, Racial Unity and Reconciliation. I want to let you know where we're going over these next five weeks just to kind of pave the pathway. So Today, week one, we're just going to name a few common objections to this idea of even talking about it and take a look at God's word. This just gets us in the ballpark today. Next week, James Talbert, pastor of Citizens Akron, is going to be with us. You're not going to want to miss that. Week three, because this is more than just black and white, 
We're actually going to have an interview on stage where we talk about immigration and the concept of otherness. What does this mean? Week four, practical steps to play a role in reconciliation and become a community of cultural empathy. And then week five, we're going to wrap it up for resolutions for us as a church as we live in North Canton, Ohio. We're wrapping up that evening. You heard Pastor John talk about this uh, on the evening of the 24th of September with a dinner panel discussion. James Talbert's going to be with us. Daryush Miraj is going to be with us. And Dr. Greg Miller, who's the president of Malone University, is going to be with us. You're not going to want to miss that evening, September 24th, where we're going to talk about Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, colorblindness, and the church's role in social justice. And so you definitely want to sign up for that. So this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10. And um, I want to encourage you, you can turn there, flip there, scroll there. If that's something that you want to be on the phone, you can follow along on the screen if you've got a hard copy of God's Word. This is a paradigm-shifting scene in the life of the early church, a scene that takes place over just five days. Five days that changed Peter's perspective and changed his life. In fact, I think you could probably make the case that other than the week that he met Jesus, these five days were the most pivotal in Peter's life. Before we get there, though, I think it's helpful to name a couple common objections to doing a series on racial reconciliation. So before we go any further, I just want to kind of like step out in the middle of the room and be the elephant that you're all seeing in the back of your head. So objection number one, does this even matter? Okay, this objection kind of has a Shouldn't we just kind of stay in our lane sort of feel? And maybe underneath this is another question. Why does race matter for the church? Because this is the church, right? Like, what does this have to do with this? Shouldn't we just, like, sing Amazing Grace and go home? So let's play a quick exercise together. I want you to pay attention to what happens in your body, in your mind, and even in this room when I say these words. George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, Critical Race Theory, white privilege, ethnic reparations. Now, all I did was say some words. What happened inside in this present moment when I said those words? Are you more anxious now than you were 30 seconds ago? I am, and I'm standing up in front of you guys. Let's take that feeling and pair it with this. Genesis 22, God makes a promise to Abraham, and here's what he said. In your offspring, which is singular, by the way, more on that in a minute, shall all nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice, all nations. The Psalms mentions the phrase, the nations, 195 times. Jesus commissions the disciples. He says this in Matthew 28. He says, go, therefore, make disciples of what? All nations. The last words he ever said were multi-ethnic and global in scope. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What's the point? There is a gap between our experience with ethnicity and God's plan for ethnicity. Our God is a global God. His kingdom does not have worldly borders. His church is a multi-ethnic bride. But as Martin Luther King lamented correctly, that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Why is that? I don't know. And I'd be an idiot if I just suggested one simple silver bullet solution because this complex, it's emotional, it's charged. And it's really hard to see correctly. (laughs) And so just 
a plea from your pastor if you had a negative reaction as I said those words a bit ago. Sit with this for a couple of weeks. Stick with it. Don't hit the eject button. Yes, race matters. Second question or second objection, does this matter here? (laughs) Now, this is a good question because you look around 44720 and it's pretty ethnically homogenous. So who are we? You can usually gauge um, the, the content or a community by its schools. And so I thought it would be helpful just to give you like a flyover of the ethnic makeup of the big five schools in our area, okay? And this is the the student enrollment. So first, North Canton City Schools, 88% white, 12% ethnic minority. Lake Local, 94% white, which leaves 6% ethnic minority. Perry, 87% white, 13% ethnic minority. Jackson, 85% white, 15% minority. Plain local, Glen Oak, is 70% white, 30% ethnic minority. Zooming out a bit to include all of Stark County, the numbers shift, but only slightly. Stark County is 82% white, 8% black, 7% multiracial, 2% Hispanic, and 1% Asian or native people. Zooming out even further, Ohio, the numbers shift, but again, not much. You can see here, Ohio is 77%, 12, 6, and then roughly 2.5 or 3. Now, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with church, and why do we bring it up here? The makeup of a church should mirror the makeup of the community that it's in, and so just follow me for a second. If math's sake, if we're a church of about 1,000 people, give or take, if we want to represent Stark County, that's 180 people who could be a part of this church family. And all of a sudden, the question immediately emerges, well, are we pursuing diversity for diversity's sake, or are we pursuing people for the kingdom of God? We'll come back to this. But I'd let you know, even our um, idea of Jerusalem, our vision of Jerusalem, if you go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, our Jerusalem is changing. Ohio is becoming more ethnically diverse. Ohio has 88 counties, and in the last 10 years, 80 of those 88 counties have seen a rise in ethnic minority populations. That's according to 2020 census at census.gov. Here's the point. We will not love who we will not learn. We're called to make disciples, and if you want the opportunity to love others, we must first recognize the responsibility to learn others. So yes, this matters, and yes, it matters here. Objection number three, and this is going to get a little closer to the heart. I don't want to be made to feel like a racist. Um, A few weeks ago, I had coffee with a dear friend who shared this fear with me. We were talking through this series, and he goes, you know, I just, I hope we don't go there, because I just, I'm tired of being made to feel guilty. I thought that was a really pretty courageous confession from him. And my response was something like, well, good, because I don't think God wants you to feel like a racist either, and that's not the agenda. Here's the thing. The secular narrative around race and ethnicity always includes guilt. And we're going to talk about the critical race theory and secular racial narratives in our panel discussion on the 24th. But for now, here's what I've found. Let me push into this. I'll get a little personal. The light of the gospel is a bright light, which means it shines on things that I'd rather not see in my own life. But the light of the gospel is also a warm light. This conversation for me is like doing an inventory of my basement. I don't go down to my basement that often, and there are things down there that I don't even want to know are there. And as I shine the light of the gospel in those dark corners, those things become exposed, right? 
But here's the thing. The light didn't put them in the basement. The light just shines the fact that they are already there. And I don't know about you, but if I've got cobwebs in the corner of my heart, I'd rather know about them than deny them. Because for me, sometimes avoidance is just a softer face of pride. Sometimes avoidance is just a softer face of pride. Fourth objection. I'm worried that this is a subtle nod to wokeism. Now, someone asked me recently uh, what our church's position is on wokeism, and I said somewhat sardonically, I don't know, I'm just trying my best to love my neighbor. <laughs> and I quickly realized that my response was not what they were looking for. Um, so I feel the need to address this one pretty head on. And because clarity is kindness, let me be absolutely clear. Our Lord owns reconciliation. He got there way before modern political philosophy ever did. And it's kind of sad that I have to say that to me, but... Because Jesus owns reconciliation, we will talk about reconciliation his way. In his great book, God and Race, subtitle, Beyond Black Fists and White Knuckles, great subtitle, Wayne Francis says this, the problem with the church in the 21st century is that we've adopted a political responsibility and abandoned our prophetic duty. Just look at that for a minute. What's he mean? He means that the church is not the religious arm of a political party, but we are the body of Christ who's been given the mandate to preach and model reconciliation for a lost world, and a lost world deserves better from us than simply parroting back political rhetoric. I believe it is still possible for the church to talk about race and reconciliation without lazily sliding back into political framework. This is not a political conversation with some spiritual-sounding cliches dropped in for effect. Reconciliation is always a spiritual conversation with possibly some political implications. And so, no, this is not a subtle nod to wokeism. We are part of the greatest party called the church. And our party is led by the uncontested king named Jesus. So this will be about celebrating the dignity and, and, and diversity of fellow image bearers of the God who has redeemed us. So enough for introduction. Ease off the gas a bit. Turn down the heat. Let's get to the text. Four scenes over five days from Peter's life change the course of the church forever. Four scenes, then a few principles, and then what to do as we start this series. First off, where are we? Acts 10 where is this in history? It's 39 AD in Acts chapter 10. Christianity is like nine or 10 years old. Jesus has died, he's risen, he's ascended. The Holy Spirit fell on the believers at Pentecost and the church just takes off. They're meeting together, eating together, remembering what Jesus said. And everything kind of centers on Jerusalem, God's city. To the Jewish religious elite, the whole thing kind of feels like a dangerous wildfire out of control. But to most people, this Jesus movement seems just too good to be true. Dangerous, maybe. Absolutely compelling. Here's what we need to know. Up until this point, Christianity has been almost exclusively a Jewish faith. Jesus, Jewish rabbi, all 12 disciples, all Jewish. Peter's sermon on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. It's the exposition of the Jewish scriptures. God has made good on his promise to bring reconciliation to the Jewish people through Messiah Jesus, fulfilling all the Old Testament promises. But now here's the question. That word that he spoke to Abraham way back in Genesis 22 about all nations of the earth, all that nation stuff in Psalms 195 times, wow. Jesus' words, make disciples of all nations. You'll receive power in all nations. Here's the question. Was all that even true or was that just like fluff? 
Because it's been 10 years, man. Like, 10 years is a long time. And this whole Jesus thing hasn't gotten much further than Jerusalem at this point. It's been 10 years, but how many of you know that God is usually at his best when we expect him the least? So, Act 1, the curtain rises on a Roman city in the Mediterranean coast. At Caesarea, there's a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Devout man feared God with all his household. He gave his alms generously to people, prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly had a vision. An angel of God came in and said to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with another Simon, a tanner, who is by the house by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him and departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius, there's another baby name for you. You're expecting a boy? What do we know about Cornelius? Couple things. First off, ethnically, he's a Gentile. He's not Jewish. This dude comes as something of a surprise in a book. It's about the Jewish faith up to this point, right? So we suspiciously go, well, you're interesting, Cornelius, but you're probably only a supporting actor. Mm, sit tight. Second thing, vocationally, he lives in Caesarea. This is a military city named after the guy at the top of the Roman org chart, okay? And Cornelius leads a group of 600 Roman soldiers. He's a person of influence. He's a leader of leaders in a culture where leadership is a pretty big deal. Third thing, spiritually, we're told that he's devout, he fears God, he's generous, and intriguingly, has a vibrant prayer life. This is really interesting to me because it doesn't fit what we may have expected. He's not pagan. He's left the polytheism of Rome. He's not Jewish. He's not keeping the Old Testament law. He'd have no reason to. But he's not saved either. He doesn't really even know who Jesus is at this point. So you put all that together, and Cornelius seems like he's this really religiously sensitive guy who's trying to lead a moral life. And maybe this is just me, but I kind of get the sense that he's waiting for something. All the dots are laid out there. They're just not connected yet. And so Cornelius lives in this kind of spiritual no man's land. He gets this intriguing vision. So he sends three servants 35 miles south along the Mediterranean coast down to Joppa to find someone he's never met. Now this is going to get interesting. Scene two. Completely unaware that God is rearranging the furniture up in Caesarea. Just listen to this. Verse 9, just listen, paint, picture the scene. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter goes up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Now, here's what we got to know. Up until this point, Peter is keeping the Old Testament law. Very strict dietary restrictions. Today, we'd say he's keeping kosher. So he's on a prayer retreat, and hungry Peter goes up to the roof, and he has what he would probably call a nightmare— all kinds of food that he has been forbidden to eat since the day he was born. And then things get worse. Take a look at this, verse 13. And there came a voice that said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, 
for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, there is no way that most of us who are ethnically Gentile can understand how that command would have sounded to Peter. That would have absolutely horrified him. Here's the best way for us to understand it. Imagine the command of God that you are in most fear of violating. Like, God, I would never cheat on my spouse. God, I would never harm my kids. God, I would never publicly disown you. Imagine the command of God that you are most fearful of violating, and then imagine hearing God's voice commanding you to violate it. That's what that would have sounded like for Peter. Theological implosion. Like, you can't be serious, God. Is that even you? And if that is you, like, I don't mean to disrespect God, but have you lost your mind? You're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're the God who delivered us from Egypt and parted the Red Sea. You're the God who met with Moses and gave us your law, and your law is good. This is how we show who we are, God. This is how we show the world that we are yours. And we followed your law for 1,500 years. My father, my grandpa, all the way back to Moses. And now you want me to do what? You want me to eat what? I'm not going to dishonor them, and I am not going to dishonor you, God. This is some kind of test, right? God, God, oh, you're serious. Mm. And then comes the command with a soft rebuke, Peter you're wrong. Either this is one of the most seismic shifts in theological history, or this is absolute heresy. This is either God doing something totally new, or this is a demon impersonating the Lord. This is no small thing, this little voice and this little vision. If Peter does what he is, God is telling him to do, and I hope he does, This would violate every cultural sensibility, every racial identity, and every religious conviction that Peter has. Time to step out of the boat again, Peter. He stepped out of boats before with moderate success. Faith is not always Peter's strong suit, is it? (laughs) Because faith usually involves my loss of security. And now with his race, his culture, and his religion at stake, that boat back there is looking really comfortable. And then almost as if God knows that Peter would need the nudge, at the very moment that Peter's wondering what to do, three Romans knock on the door. You Peter? Yes. Okay, cool. Here's the deal. Our boss up there in Caesarea guy that you don't know, his name's Cornelius. Um, he had a dream. Angel told him to come down, or told us to come down here to get you so you can go talk to him about God. Do you want to go? So we've got spiritually curious Cornelius pacing the floor up in Caesarea, and we've got spiritually perplexed Peter scratching his head down in Joppa. 35 miles apart geographically, light years apart culturally, different races, different ethnicities, different cultures, different backgrounds, different stories, different biases, different traditions. I wonder what's going to happen. Good news. God's about to break this thing wide open. Let me fast track it for us. Peter goes up to Caesarea. He meets Cornelius. 
there's this really funny moment where they don't know what to do with each other. Like they don't know the social cues. And I think God includes that in the text for our benefit because sometimes crossing ethnic boundaries is kind of funny. It's awkward. A crowd gathers because here's this Jewish fisherman now in a Roman base camp. And Cornelius goes, okay, you're Peter. I heard you like to talk. So talk. And Peter goes, talk me. Absolutely, I will. Impromptu sermons rarely go well, but look at how Peter starts this thing off in verse 34. He says this. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He must have gotten the vision from the sheet. Okay, Peter, you got our attention. Now what? Before we go any further, interesting insight. That word partiality could be otherwise translated as no racial favoritism. It's the only time the word is used in the New Testament. It's this giant flashing red light that's meant to stop us in our tracks. When Peter uses that word, a fascinating thing for someone who grew up the way Peter grew up, to say that God no longer shows any racial favoritism. Oh, wow. When he uses that word, it becomes an industrial-grade, five-foot-wide push broom that sweeps away centuries of racial prejudice. And now with his mouth open, because this is Peter, after all, he says this. Look in verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened all through Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are his witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And then he commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge both the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness. And then here it is. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's like the Cliff Notes version of the Gospels, by the way. Peter's going, here's what I know. Jesus came, he taught, he healed, he died, he rose again. We all believe he's the Messiah. And Cornelius, here's the thing. Up until now, this has kind of been like our family thing. But Cornelius, your people want in? You feel how the weight of nations hangs in what Peter just said. If what happens next is what I hope will happen next, Peter is reaching back 1,700 years to Genesis chapter 22 and God's conversation with Abraham. (laughs) Scene four, what happens? Take a look in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that is Jewish, who had come to Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So it's like Pentecost all over again. Remember? And then now here's where Peter's just like his old ready fire aim self. I love this. In verse 47, he goes, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people? He's like, hey, the fire's burning. Let's pour gas on it. Come on. 
Because they've received the same Holy Spirit that we have. And then he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. That racial dividing wall, guys, it's gone. It got blown up. It's going to be complicated, but we'll figure it out. Now, you think this would be great news, right? You'd think Peter go back to Jerusalem, tell everybody what's up. Everybody rejoices that God is like busting up boundaries that we thought were previously impenetrable, but that's not what happens. And what happens at the risk of oversimplification, what we see next is the birth of racial bias in the church. It's almost unconscious. It's like a reflex. Just. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Do you hear it in there? You did what? You went where? You ate with who? No one aren't side of history. We look in the back and we go, come on. <laughs> These guys were so afraid of Peter breaking the rules that they couldn't see God changing the rules. And isn't that always the case, that whenever God moves in power, our fears get exposed? Because I feel like jumping through the pages and going like, you guys understand these people got saved, right? Like, can you not see what God's doing? God just fulfilled that promise he made 1,700 years ago to Abraham. It's just fulfilled. You see what God's doing here, right? This whole thing just broke wide open, and you want to get worked up about a bacon sandwich? Come on. But fear's a powerful thing, isn't it? I'll quote Wayne Francis again because he says it better than I can. The reason why racism is so hard to dismantle is because it's always associated with pride. Racism is always about distorting rank. It's always about seeing someone as less than you. But not to be swayed, Peter confronts with courage and compassion. I'll summarize it. He goes, look, I went and talked to these guys. They showed up at my house asking about Jesus. So we walked to Caesarea. I met this guy named Cornelius. He invites all his friends and family over to hear me preach. Like, guys, Romans heard me preach the gospel. Who would have thought? And so, guys, I just told them. I just told them all about what Jesus said and what he did, why he's so important. It was a good sermon, guys. I was a lot quicker than I was back in Acts 2. You'd be really proud of me. And then it was like Pentecost all over again. And they were so serious about Jesus, I just baptized them. Guys, we got like family up there now. And then, sensing the mood shift, Peter, tactful Peter, incisive Peter, preacher Peter, and now both feet out of the boat, Peter drops this in chapter 11, verse 17. I love this verse. If then God gave the same spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And that's the tipping point. The gospel obliterates racial superiority and recognizes racial nuance. The gospel destroys ethnic stereotypes and it elevates ethnic beauty. The gospel crosses cultural boundaries and celebrates cultural distinctives. And so if God wants to do something that's outside of my comfort zone, I'd be an idiot to stand in his way. Mic drop, Peter out. 
And then the text closes with this. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Proper response, by the way. Not to protest back and go, well, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Mm-mm. Just sit in it. They fell silent. And then I think there's a massive gap between that and then this. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And as a Gentile, I'm pretty thankful for that. You? Now, you can tell we're kind of easing in a little bit this morning, and that's intentional. We're going to fly over a little bit lower every week in this series. And for today, as we kind of settle in a little bit and get comfortable being uncomfortable, I want to give you four principles right from this text, and then what you can do today just to start. Principle number one. Racial reconciliation is a discipleship issue. You know what I love most about this story? And this is me. This is God personally discipling Peter. I love it. Like Cornelius is up in here in Caesarea just doing his thing. Peter's on a prayer retreat down in Joppa. Rhythms of life, everyday spaces. And God just goes, all right, it's go time. And by the end of this, both Peter and Cornelius both move to a space that they were not before. Here's why that's important. Only God can dislodge sin from the human heart. Guilt won't do it. Shame won't do it. Fear doesn't do it. Politics surely can't do it. Only God. In his book, The New Reformation, Finding Hope in the Fight for Ethnic Unity, Shai Lin names six common ethnic sins. I found these to be really helpful and actually really convicting. First, ethnic hatred. This is active disdain for another group based on their ethnicity. Second is ethnic pride. When a person has feelings of superiority for the group that they belong to. Third, ethnic favoritism. The practice of giving unjust treatments to a group on the basis of their ethnicity. Fourth is ethnic oppression. The unjust exercise of power toward a people on the basis of their ethnicity. Fifth, ethnic idolatry. When a Christian makes their ethnicity their ultimate identity rather than Christ's. That's a subtle one, by the way. This one is the one that hit me in the head is ethnic neglect. When a person fails to care properly for a person because of their ethnicity. He continues, it should be plain that each of these sins is at the root a failure to love neighbor as self. I suspect that the Christian who balks at the possibility of being a racist would look at that list and see temptations that have gripped their own hearts. And praise be to God that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover those sins as well. So you need to know before we go any further, this is not about guilt and shame. This is not about convincing someone they're a racist. This is about Psalm 139 saying, okay, Lord, shine your light in the corners of my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the life everlasting. This is a discipleship conversation. Principle number two, we have already been racially discipled and we don't know it. We've already been racially discipled and we don't know it. What that means basically is like, I already have been taught how to think about race, 
But I've been taught how to think about race the same way I've been taught how to think about like money and like parenting and kids. I just kind of learned it. It just kind of like got in me, and I don't even know that it's really there. Michelle Sanchez says this. This is a long quote, and I tried to split it up, but it's so good. <laughs> she says, we have all been subtly conditioned by the culture, practices, and perspectives of the family we were reared in, the place we grew up in, and even the era that we find ourselves in. The question is not if you have been racially discipled. The question is how. The problem, of course, is that much of the racial discipleship that you have received has been unconscious, unintentional, and in many cases, misaligned with God's heart. Stop for a second. Are we even willing to admit that that's a possibility? When it comes to race, most of us need to be intentionally re-discipled. Here's what that looks like. She continues. Next quote. There it is. Racial discipleship is not just about resisting racism. Because I think we'd probably all go there. Yeah, racism's bad. Or transforming the world. It's certainly that, but it's far more. Racial discipleship is about being personally transformed so that you can experience more of Jesus. I love that. What does she mean? The biggest miss at the end of the I-77 off-ramp for me that day wasn't that some guy didn't get a couple quarters from my console or that I somehow felt threatened for whatever reason. The biggest miss at the end of the off-ramp that day was that the kingdom of God did not advance in that place because of something in me that I did not see. And the question we've got to ask is, when God sovereignly arranges an introduction, will I head to Caesarea? Or will I just lock the door? Third principle. Racial discipleship always means confronting fear. Funny thing, have you ever noticed that God shows up at the edges of new things, but he seems strangely distant when we're comfortable? A.W. Tozer made this insight. I know we're quote heavy, but this is so good. Here's A.W. Tozer. He says, the power of God has always hovered over our frontiers. The church today is content to carry on its painless program with enough money to pay its bills and a membership large enough to assure its future. Ouch. Its members study the experiences of others instead of seeking its new experiences of their own. Its security is its deadliest foe. I think we should see racial reconciliation in 2023 as a frontier for the white American church. And I know we're scared of frontiers. It's why we get anxious when we mention those words that I mentioned a couple minutes ago. Here's the thing. You don't even have to have this conversation. Because this is North Canton. We don't have to have this conversation. And that's exactly why I think it's so necessary. <laughs> if we're going to do hard things well, like opening the heart for repentance, like having courageous conversations, like opening my ears, closing my mouth, those commitments are where we rediscover the possibility of the power of God. Faith over fear does not have to do with masks or no masks. That was just about public policy. Faith over fear has to do with obediently following God when I'm scared of what it's going to cost me. So racial reconciliation always means confronting fear. Last one, and then we'll move into what we can do for today. Humility, principle number four. Humility unlocks the door for reconciliation. What was the tipping point for Peter? Where did this thing shift for him? Where did this come into focus? It was Peter's testimony after he stepped over the racial line, and he says, who am I that I think I could ever stand in God's way? Simply believing that God has a plans for the nations is not enough. But a personal commitment to humility, learning, repentance, restoration. Okay, that's where this thing starts. 
Just going, yeah, I, I see it in the Bible. I'm going to go home now. That's not where this starts. Let me be personal. One of the ways that pride shows itself in my life, so I'll just let me kind of get out here and get a little vulnerable for you. <laughs> and it's true with this as any other conversation. One of the ways that pride shows itself in my life is it starts to convince me that I'm already good. To skip over that prayer, Lord, see if there's any offensive. No, 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 I love people, I'm okay. My natural tendency is like to stiff arm the whole thing and go, no, I love people. No, 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 you stay over there. And that's me. Avoidance is just often for me a softer face of pride. And so what does racial humility look like? The subtle suggestion that I may have unacknowledged biases. Could you get there? The notion that there may be unseen prejudices in me. Could you get there? The idea that I have something to learn. Could you get there? How we react to those suggestions tell me what side of verse 17 I'm on. And just like another little thing, if Peter, who walked with Jesus for three years personally, still had some residual stuff, is it at all possible that I might too? (laughs) So what do we do with all this? So I want to close with three invitations. I'm just going to give them to you really quick. Look upward, look inward, and look outward. Look upward. Here's the question. What ethnicity is Christianity? The corrective starting point for that is not shame or guilt. It's going back to the word and understand that racial and ethnic diversity is always a part of God's plan. We're going to develop this more in the coming weeks, but for now, that's step one, to recover a source of, or a sense of God's multi-ethnic vision for his church. And I'll tell you, shameless plug, if you go, I need to talk more about that because I don't know what that means for me, those God and race groups that we talked about, they're going to follow this series. We're going to do all five weeks, and then those groups start up. They're Sunday mornings. If you're going, I want to talk more, to look upward. That's where you start. Second thing, look inward. Look inward. This conversation cannot stay academic. It's got to be personal. And so we've got to look inward and ask those hard questions. And maybe you got a story that mirrors mine. Why did I lock the door? I don't know. I just know I did, and I really wish I could do things differently. Spirit, shine the light in the basement corners of my heart. Look inward. Third thing, look outward. 2023 still has Cornelius's, and they're, for the time being, they're still out there with dots waiting to be connected. God's probably not going to give you a vision of a sheet this afternoon during your afternoon nap. I don't think. If he does, you should email me and we should talk. Looking outward may just mean opening my eyes and saying, God, help me to see what you see. Help me to understand how I see who I see. And maybe even looking outward means I need to throw the car in reverse and do some repentance. This is not about pursuing diversity for the sake of pursuing diversity. This is about pursuing people for the sake of the kingdom and the glory of God. So band, if you guys want to come on out, we're going to close with a song this morning called How Marvelous. It's an old hymn. It's one of my favorites. And How Marvelous may sound like an odd choice. to to close out week one of this series. Here's why, though. Recovering wonder at the power of the gospel, I think, is where this conversation starts. Not guilt, not shame. It's like, Lord, holy smokes, who am I that you saved me? (laughs) Just a big splash of cold water of humility in the face, which I know we all need. Because of the gospel, we are all now reconciled reconcilers. Reconciled reconcilers. That's not my word. That's Michelle Michelle Sanchez's word. And so as we stand and sing, 
I think it's gonna echo in your heart, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Let me pray. Lord, we do just right now wanna stop and say, your gospel is marvelous, your gospel is wonderful. And we ask, Lord, that you would shine your light in our hearts. If there's darkened corners that we don't see, please, Lord, your light is bright and it is warm and all that you ask from us, you provide for us. And so we welcome it, Lord. Move, Holy Spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.